Hi, we're Grace and Clara, here to shake up the world of women's health. We know firsthand how intimidating it can be to speak up when it comes to issues like your menstrual cycle or menopause. That's why we created Unprocessed, a weekly podcast where we dive into every aspect of women's health, from mental well-being to physical nutrition. We're here to ask the burning questions and encourage us all to advocate for ourselves. So get ready for some smart, cheeky and witty discussions about all things women's health. Hey guys, welcome back to Unprocessed. You have Grace and Clara in your ears and we have a fabulous episode for you today. We are chatting to Nat Kingadis about the complex world of hormones, how to approach the sensitive topics about menstrual cycles and contraception with your teens, and we also deep dive into the world of fertility. But first, Clara, there has been some breaking news in the world of junk food. So they can no longer, during peak times, advertise junk food. Now, on television. Now... I've got to say, does that I don't include know a... fast food like Maccas? Yeah, so I don't uh. know if this is going to be. Well, a, it's going to be an interesting thing for poor, you know, for the television networks. But secondly, I don't know if this is going to be enough. Mm, I agree. This is a it's... bit of a soft touch. Well, because I get it on social media, I don't really see ads. I don't watch mainstream TV or read the newspaper. Where I see my ads is TikTok and Instagram. So is that going to... Are they going to be able to police that? I don't yeah. know. And then also YouTube. You know, I, yeah. I digest a lot of YouTube content. So how are they going to police that? I know that my my God, but he's 10. Because when we were, this is just a funny story, but when I was... Um, pregnancy shopping or looking around at I went to a baby expo and no it was literally the worst morning of my life it's just I could not I'm not that person I'm just not a baby (laughs) expo person but I did I took my 10 year old goddaughter and my best friend and we went because I thought that I would be able to see everything at once I could just pick it and walk away anyway the only person that enjoyed the experience was my 10 year old goddaughter she kept on walking around telling me to buy all these products because she has a YouTuber that she watches that's pregnant. Oh, and she knew okay. what I needed because of this YouTuber. <laughs> Interesting. So, yeah. So, but this is the content they're digesting. Mm. So, taking it away from mainstream media, is it is it going to be effective? I honestly don't think it is going to be effective because it's not just the advertising that they're paying for in those platforms it's influencers that are saying hey I've just been endorsed to eat this burger well did you see the TikTok challenge for I believe one of the big chicken brands I don't want to say their name um and again it was all around eating a bucket of chicken you know they're doing these organic campaigns as well so I don't think this I think it's a good first step yeah but I think We've got a long way to go. We've got a long way to go. Long way to go. And also, no offence, but people who are watching Free to Air, like that's my parents. And they're probably not going and digesting a bucket of chicken. Oh, my God, no. My mum's more whole food than I am. (laughs) I love your mum. I love the fact that she has a market garden and, yeah, she she is living her best life. Oh, she is. All my friends are jealous of my mum's veggie patch. (laughs) Hey, it's Grace here. Just want to quickly interrupt the episode to say, 
it's time to start nourishing you. Join the eight-week program and get eight weeks of easy, delicious meal plans with full shopping lists. And at $5.50 or under per serve, it couldn't be more affordable to eat healthy. Each week, we'll give you a range of meals to cook that are quick and easy to prepare with minimal waste. You don't have to be a master chef to enjoy these nutritious meals. Plus fun online workouts, mentoring from industry experts, and access to our exclusive sleep school. Spots are limited. Join now. Now let's get back into the episode. I'm very excited about this conversation with Nat today as I feel completely in the dark around my menstrual cycle and fertility, and I feel like I'm not the only one. I learned about my period growing up, but no one ever told me about the phases around it that make up the whole picture. Nat is a qualified healthcare practitioner, author, speaker, and all-round natural fertility expert. And today, Clara and I get to sit down and ask her all the burning questions about our hormones that we need answered. Nat, welcome to the podcast. You have covered so many areas of women's health, from periods to fertility. But I want to know, what was the catalyst to start you on this journey? Yeah, I joke about this because I remember many years ago, I've been in the industry for nearly 20 years, just shy of 20 years. And I remember saying to my business partner at the time, I have absolutely no desire to treat women's health. Let's think about it. Every single patient is hormonal. That's a good <laughs> is that point. Your idea of a good time. Like yeah. it wasn't it wasn't my idea of a good time. Um however, we were just I was just constantly um, faced with patients that wanted answers that weren't getting answers. I don't know. I was just like, I, I guess I threw my hands up in the air. I was like, okay, fine, let's do this. And I remember saying to patients, this is, you know, like I said, nearly 20 years ago, I don't have the answers, even though I had studied in depth, um, the human body, gynecology. I'd done, you know, a lot of diving into women's health as such, but what I was seeing in the clinic, I'd never learnt. There was no subject. There was no education. Um, on what I was seeing. And so I kind of went on a little bit of a quest myself to try and figure out, well, what's happening? Eventually came to the conclusion that the symptoms that I was seeing women experience were a direct correlation of our busy lifestyles. Mm. But nobody had really put that together, even though I think probably your more complementary medicines tend to have breakthroughs before science does, even though science has to have the breakthrough for it to be mainstream medicine. I think whenever we look to what complementary medicine offers, there's a lot of clues in that. And that's great. That's, you know, there's no harm in that. You know, eventually I think we understand that stress is a big driver for so many issues. But really what stress does when it comes to your hormones is your stress hormones are always a priority. That was leaving women very depleted when it came to their sex hormones, yet they couldn't figure out what why that was. And so just making this realization saw us become very busy very quickly. And I must admit, we didn't have the infrastructure for that. We just kept, I, we just kept helping women and it was such a privilege to do that. And I guess it was the, definitely the catalyst to where we are today. Um, and now we've helped thousands and thousands of women um, reclaim their hormone health and just be healthier in, in general. And I still don't think we're there yet when it comes to this type of education. There's a long way to go, a very long way to go. Um, but at least there's conversations about it and at least women are continuing to be curious as to how they could feel better. I'm in my 40s, have just been diagnosed with endometriosis. So I had been asking questions about my health since I was a teenager my mum, I listened to a podcast of yours actually just yesterday on endometriosis, and you said it comes from genetics, but our mothers didn't have the same stresses as we did, so it might not 
present the same. And that rang true to me. So my mum had no symptoms and yet I was getting pain about how mums should talk to their daughters and how to start that conversation. So I guess what, where is that jumping off point with all of this stuff? You know, where do we start? Well, I think our mothers were the generation that when there was pain, let's say, let's say they did have some pain with their period, they were told that that was just part and parcel of being a woman. And I remember my mum saying to me, oh, I'm so sorry you're in pain. It sucks to be a woman. It's so interesting what's ingrained in us because I have gone to say the same thing to my daughter and had to actually consciously pull myself up because it's like, hang on, no, it doesn't have to be this way. There's a reason that this is happening and it does not suck to be a woman. It's such a privilege to have babies. And and so I think it's actually the conversation it is changing and women are becoming more aware. But I think as mothers, we definitely have an opportunity to change the trajectory based on what we've seen happen, our own experience, what we've come to learn about ourselves and how we can pass that body wisdom on. And I do believe that the disconnect happened not that long ago. I would say birth control was introduced, women became disconnected from their bodies. Sure, it came with another whole lot of benefits of what they gained in terms of, you know, liberation and freedom and being able to work and um, there's there's benefits in that respect. But what it did to women, because it flatlines their hormones, they stopped watching what was happening from a cycle perspective and lost we really lost that intuition and what came with that. So I really think it's it's such an opportunity for us to be a great example to our next generation as women as to what this could look like. And if things don't make sense, if there is pain, just like in your instance, Clara, like if there is issues, we start to ask questions and we start to seek answers. The average woman eight, waits at least eight years for a diagnosis. Wow. You know, by the time you're eight years down the track, if you could have actually done some fundamental things at the beginning, and the beginning might mean at 16 years of age, yeah. you know, then that's a very different future for that that person. So, you know, it's more conversation. It's more curiosity. It's us as mothers getting answers that we deserve, but then also for our children and also knowing the history. You know, it, for you, you know now that there's a diagnosis. There's things that you can do to actually help your children so that these factors don't actually get turned on. Because like I said, for the instance of endometriosis, it's genetic, but things around you will, enough switches flicked on in the body, it will present itself. The job is to how can we flick these switches off? Mm. And that's not a druggable scenario. That actually comes from the day-to-day things that we do. Personally, I always look to my period if that's a sign, like if everything's going well that month, it's like, oh, yeah, my hormones must be in check. Like that seems like such a small thing that happens once a month to rely on to make sure everything's working. Is there other ways to check our hormone health or other ways to find irregularities within our hormones? I mean, I think the first thing we we can't, it's like anything, we can't monitor it if we're not monitoring it. Like if you're not writing it down and then at least having some awareness of where you are in the cycle, how you're feeling on any given day, just as you said, Grace, every single day of your cycle is different. Where your hormones were at yesterday and where they are tomorrow can be polar ends apart based on where you are in your cycle. And so 
simply knowing where the ebbs and flows are means you can work with it rather than against it. I like to use the example right before my period is due. My creativity is in the toilet. Like it is literally not on the radar. Now, old me didn't really draw the correlation. I used to come to that time of the cycle. I would think, oh, my gosh, I'm an author. I have nothing. I have no creativity. I can't write. When is this coming back? And I used to try and force it and work against Mm -hmm. it. Now knowing that I'm useless at this point in time, and if I give myself the rest, those two days that I need right before my period is due, then it's a reset. And then I'm off again. Once my period is here and my hormones have reset for the month, I'm good. I'm good to go. Knowing that and knowing that it's not gone, it's just in reflection to where I am in my cycle is such a game changer. It means I don't worry about it. I can surrender. I know and give myself the opportunity to rest and recover. And if I don't do that, sure, it comes back, but nowhere near as fierce as if I give myself what I need to recover. So looking at the ebbs and flows, looking at your moods, looking at if there's any other symptoms, whether it's pain, aches, headaches, even just things like libido, what your sleep is like, all of these things are clues into what your hormones are doing. It may be that you've just never made the correlation. And the only way you can do that is to get yourself some type of tracker, whether it's just a free app or a piece of paper next to your bed. Um, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't have to be fancy. Mm. And you can start to track what's actually happening. And the nice thing is, yes, we do have technology now. We do have devices and apps that allow us to actually up-level this. And I would absolutely recommend that you look into that. But it doesn't have to start with that. It can be as simple as you just starting to have some awareness around your cycle. You talk about stresses as well. You Obviously, you say that you know sleep comes into it um, or hormones come into it, how you feel, your mood. But what kind of stresses do you see that start to play into, um, you know, stuff like endometriosis or pox? You know, how does that affect you? Your body doesn't understand how to compartmentalize stress. It only knows stress as stress. And the other thing I want to say is we all have a different outlook on what stress is. So some patients I have to say, Stress isn't necessarily being overwhelmed. Stress could be a dominant emotion constantly. Stress could be you haven't used your bowels for three days. Stress could be that you're not sleeping. Stress could be a deadline. I think that's what we associate stress with being busy. Stress could be the 80 chemicals you've exposed yourself to before you walk out the door in the morning. Yeah, right. Or a terrible relationship that you're currently in or a moldy house or a messy house. Like there's so many. Driving a car is stressful. Mm. You're just on autopilot now and you know how to drive. But there's still signs. There's still traffic. There's still cars. You still have to be aware. Whilst it's, it's a subconscious pathway that you've created that you can just do, it's still stressful to your body. So, you know, it, stress is the sum of all of these things. It's not just I've I've got too many tasks to do. Stress also comes from what others tell us and what we take to be facts for ourselves. And I think this is particularly important for women as, as we get older. We probably in our 30s and 40s are able to do more than we've ever done. There might be children. Sometimes we're looking after older parents you're working, you're running a household, there's a lot going on. And that can feel very, very overwhelming and stressful if we don't frame it properly. And often we've got our mother looking on 
saying, you are so busy, yeah. you don't have time for this. And I find this one interesting, actually, because I say to patients all the time, because they'll come in, they're like, I'm just so busy, there's just so much. And it's like, we're, we're actually all really busy. However, the people that actually get things done with some level of ease and some level of awareness are the ones that A, carve out time for themselves, but B, have recognised that they get to do a lot of things, but they don't have to do it with haste. So I say to patients all the time, if you reframe this and you just said, I get to do a lot of things, does that not feel better than I'm so busy? How am I going to get everything done? Because you get it done anyway. We also live in an age where there's so many things to help us get stuff done. It's not like, you know, once upon a time, let's say, we had to do a lunch order for the kids and we're running late and so you know, mum would sit there and write it on the paper bag and then have to have the right amount of time. Mm-mm. You open up an app, you press sandwich and you press pay. That's it. So, you know, there's things that help us to get things done and we're probably listening to other people telling us how overwhelmed we are when in actual fact we get it done. So reframe that. It's like I get to do a lot of things. And automatically, it's just does that not feel better when you say it that way? It does, right? Yeah, 100%. You know, recognising that there is a lot on our plates, I think, is very important. Recognising that we get to do a lot of things and that the, the, we can be more productive when we approach it without the stress and or the haste that society tells us that we need to have to achieve something. Mm-hmm. I do find the world of fertility overload. I'm going to be honest. I'm not in a time in my life where I'm having children, but it's in the near future. What are common misconceptions about fertility that you hear a lot of? And what should women not be worrying about? I put a post up at the end of last year and people were, uh, it was a very well-received post. And it said, you got to the end of 2022 and you didn't freeze your eggs, don't worry. Because there is this <laughs> massive rush and push for women mm. to start considering egg freezing. Yeah. And if you've watched anybody that's actually truly shared their story with that, it's not all bells and whistles. It's not as easy as we're led to believe. And sure, it might be an option for you, but is it the only option? No. And nothing is ever going to have as much of an impact on your fertility as taking care of yourself from the get-go. So don't panic if you haven't frozen your eggs or you can't afford to. Many women can't afford it. It's extremely expensive, expensive, right? And then you've got to also maintain them. You've got to keep them. Sure, I treat women in their 40s who wish they had frozen their eggs in their 30s. Please don't get me wrong. But I can also see women in their 40s who are healthier than some women in their 30s, more fertile than some women in their in their 30s because they have done a great job of looking after themselves. So we know fertility starts to decline from the mid-30s. That doesn't, it's not a switch that we turn off. If it was, women wouldn't be prescribed birth control in their late 30s. You know, it, yeah. it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be possible to fall pregnant if that was the case. You are still very fertile for quite some time. And so it's just, you know, it's just a matter of being able to have some faith in your body that it knows what to do and that you actually have huge control over your fertility based on your lifestyle. First things first, if there is a known situation of a diagnosis, PCOS, endo, adenomyosis, thyroid issues, 
I would say from the moment you get that diagnosis, you start to think long-term. You start to think bigger picture. And sure, you might need medication to help to manage it, but also the medication isn't the start and the end of that. It's everything else that you can do to support your health. And many, I always say to my patients, I will work with your doctor to be on the lowest to no dose of any medication without symptoms. That's the aim. So bearing that in mind, how can I actually help women and steer their bodies in the right direction where they're looking and after their fertility because they're actually addressing whatever symptoms their body is showing them as clues. And so if there's a known issue, then let's address it. We don't just mask it with birth control because once you transition off birth control, the problem is going to still be there. Unfortunately, it doesn't fix the problem. It just puts a blanket on it. Um, and, and then, you know, there's definitely things you can do from a lifestyle perspective that help to preserve fertility pretty much the things we've already been talking about. I don't think it's revolutionary. I don't feel like it's revolutionary at this point to say, you need to look after your nutrition. You need to make sure that you're sleeping. You need to make sure you're doing, you know, exercise. I don't feel like that's offering anyone something that they're not going to walk away and go, oh, thanks, Nat, that's not, you know, we know that. (laughs) But I can't stress enough about how important it all is and it all adds up. For me, it's these stresses that we're talking about Stress speeds up any known condition that we might experience. It can mimic perimenopause and menopause. I can see women who have been told that they have premature menopause and they don't. It's just that they've got a lot of stress and it's driven their FSH levels way too high. So their doctor looks at it and says, oh, well, you're in early menopause. And they're actually not. They're just really stressed out. Looking at how we can... Again, recognize what are the stresses? What do we need to do with those? How can we identify where they're coming from? You know, a stress could be one food that you're actually intolerant to, but you eat it every day unknowing. Onion, kale, broccoli. Wow. You know, it's a, it's a common food that you might be eating, but you're actually at this point in time intolerant, which keeps you in a state of flaring, which keeps you in a state of stress. So it really is being curious on many levels. And I think you know, that does help tremendously. The other one thing I will say for fertility, actually, I will eat my words. There's nothing you can do that out supplements sleep. There's not a single thing that you can do. Maybe meditation might take you closer, but you actually have to spend time in it. There's nothing you can do to make up for lost sleep. Mm. There's nothing you can do to mimic it. it. You know, you have to spend time doing it. So if you, if that was the only thing that you did from listening to this podcast because you were concerned about your fertility, I would say how can you prioritise seven to eight hours of quality sleep? And if you can't, you need to look at why you're not sleeping. Is it that you can't fall asleep? Is it that you can't stay asleep? What is your body telling you? So I would say yes. Sleep is a priority, Mm -hmm. fat and protein are a priority, and being somewhat selfish, which is not a selfish thing, it's just the word is called selfish, I don't know, we we need another word for it, prioritising your self-care are are three things that you could absolutely do to support and preserve your fertility. I think people should stop saying selfish is a bad word. I think selfish needs to be embraced more often in life. Um, I guess there's that movement around, you know, learning how to say no and setting up your boundaries. But I also think being selfish is a good thing. Actually prioritizing yourself is a good thing. I agree. If I, yeah, if I look at any of like the women that I know that are able to do a lot of things, are very successful but have some what they look like they've got it all going on. You know these women? Yeah. yeah. They always have 
their self-care is a priority. Mm. Mm. And I said this at the start of this year. I'm like, this is the year that I am going to schedule in more self-care than ever. I also, it, and the, you know what's also funny is I've, I've, always, I've lived a pretty healthy life. I can't say I've ever had major issues. When I was younger, I did, you know. I, I would say that probably some level of endometriosis, never diagnosed, but the level of pain that I would experience was insane with vomiting and passing out wow. and pressing face up against the tiles because I was hot, then I was cold. Oh. Like I had that whole that whole scenario going on. Once I figured that out, I've probably lived 20 years of a pretty even and healthy life. It's not until you feel like that starts to slip away from you that you actually do something about it. I was When I was out for my walk this morning, I was like, I wish I had of actually just nipped this in the bud immediately because I'm down a I'm down a hole at the moment and I'm slowly creeping out of it. But it's taken a long time to recover from being sick a couple of years ago. I, I definitely have long term effects of the virus, and I wish I had of been on the forefront of. But you don't know it until you're in it, mm-hmm. and then you can feel like it's too late. And it's not too late. It's just the small things that you can do. But self care. That's this is why this year I'm like. I have to do this. I also want to be around until I'm a hundred. Mm. I want to see my great grandchildren. Like so, and I want, but and I don't want to be frail and broken. I want to be here <laughs> and I want to be healthy. You know, so yeah. I have to put in the hard work now because mm. things are changing. And I wish I had have grabbed it a little bit earlier, but it's never too late. So contraception, especially of my generation, you know, twenty years ago, if there was anything slightly, you know, untoward, too many pimples. Um, you know, obviously painful periods, slightly heavy bleed, anything. Instead of investigating, they went, here's a pill, take mm. the pill. And realistically, we don't really, we didn't know as 16 no. or 15 year olds what that was then doing to our body long term and what was happening with our fertility because of it. If I was a mother now and I've got a, you know, I've got a five month old, but obviously when she becomes 15, 16, what are the alternatives? You know, where do we Love this where do we go? I've got so much to say. <laughs> <laughs> I want all mothers to understand that your sex hormones don't mature until around the age of 21. And very often at around the age of 16, girls go through a phase that mimics PCOS. I write about this in my book, which means that we can start to see an increase in acne. The periods can be a little bit irregular. You might see a little bit more um, shift in body shape. Um, this is all very normal and it's a part of kind of like the next phase of development in puberty. But it's the time that as mothers we would panic, we would take our daughter to the doctor and more than likely birth control is still the option that is suggested. Here's what you need to know. If you prescribe a a young girl birth control and hormones, synthetic hormones at the age of 16, and effectively flatline her hormones, you are stopping that maturation of hormones, which means that when she transitions off the pill, say she's 26 now and she wants mm. to come off the pill, she as is as sexually mature hormonally as her 16-year-old self. Wow. You have stopped that, that development that is a normal thing to happen. This is why we know research tells us that the older somebody is to use birth control, the less problematic it is on their fertility because they've gone through that process so if, you know, after the age of 21, research suggests that it's less problematic because you've gone through that. And it's a really important 
developmental process, obviously, to for your hormones to develop. So there are many, many girls that are prescribed the pill at 16 for whatever reason and only to discover that when they transition off, not only are the symptoms there, they come fl- fl- flushing back, flooding back, I should say, and they're often worse because that has gone untreated for many years. Also, if your body is showing you clues as a 16-year-old outside of those little shifts that I just spoke about, mm. then there should be some exploration as to what's happening. We should also down, look down the mother line and see what you might be predisposed to, whether it's thyroid issues, whether it's endometriosis, if that runs in the family. You can be on the front foot at this point and start to do things to make sure that you manage that. But the pill doesn't allow you to do that. Now, am I saying you shouldn't take the pill? No, that's a decision that you need to make. You need to have all of the information and work out what's best for you. If you're sitting here saying, Nat, I am on the bathroom floor every month for four days. I can't get out of bed. It's debilitating. Then my answer would be, well, let's use the resources that we have to feel better, but we also still need to treat the underlying condition that exists with the aim of you not needing to use birth control to treat a problem so that you can get to a point where we all feel like you're you're better and you're in a better position and you can safely transition off the off birth control and live without symptoms. So it all has a place. I'm not sitting here saying you shouldn't take it. I think that medicine is there to help us. You know, it can definitely help us live in the moment, uh, have a better experience. But where's the exit strategy? What's the long-term plan? That's what I think is lacking when we have a diagnosis and a a treatment plan is it's kind of like, well, it's a set and forget scenario and that's not how this works. So again, to the point of treating long-term fertility, this is also, we have to look at this long game. We have to look at what's happening long-term, but birth control is birth control if you're choosing it for birth control. It's another thing to be using it to treat a condition which actually can't be treated by birth control. So there's, you know, there's fundamental issues here. And again, your doctor wants to give you a solution. That's not their job is to give a solution. So you go to the doctor and they want to help you. And that's what's in their toolkit to help you with. So it's not always a druggable it's not always a druggable scenario and that's unfortunate because it would be so nice if it was. 20 years ago when I was going through this, it's the GP and mm. it's the GP and it's maybe another GP, but there's nothing else outside of that. And my mum tried other places. Mm. So yeah. where do you go? I think that there are still great GPs out there that will listen, that will actually, or they'll admit and say, I actually don't know. Mm. I think the fundamental issue here is potentially it's the gynecologist that you should be speaking to to at least get some testing done and see what hormones what's happening with hormones um it is difficult because i feel like each system is disconnected from the next you know your doctor's not speaking to your gynae and your gynae's not speaking to your endocrinologist and and so on and so on and it would be really nice if there is a scenario that you could create for yourself where all of your healthcare providers are talking to each other um I also think that we need to get resourceful. I wrote a book, Beautiful You, that was aimed at young women to understand their body so that they could make informed choices. Uh, And there are great health professionals out there that will help you piece it all together. And that's what I pride myself in being a detective. I'm like, all right, give me the hard stuff because it's actually not that hard. I was speaking to someone this morning. I'm like, this is not that hard. Why do we make it so hard? It's, It's actually not because we don't view it in the way that maybe I view it. I don't know. Um, 
But to the point, I didn't answer the question before. What contraception would we be recommending mm-hmm. for a young girl? I do want to answer that. So from I've got a 15-year-old daughter and we're at this point in our lives. Now, first and foremost, helping her to understand her cycle at this point in time so she knows when she's ovulating and she knows when her period's due, that is a game changer. You can't go back and get that information you know, unless we're recording it now. So it comes back to monitoring. So teaching her that now so that she can understand the ebbs and flows and then for her to know when she's fertile and when she's not, she can then make smart decisions hopefully around that because she's empowered enough to know when she's fertile. I would encourage every teenager, if you are sexually active and young women, you must use a condom. Like the so STDs are a horrible thing for us to deal with and can have long-term impact on someone's fertility. So that to me is an easy solution. It's a barrier method for a young person. And I can't tell you the number of mothers that will say, I am petrified my daughter is going to fall pregnant using a condom. Um, and, I mean, if they're used properly, which they're taught to, to use them, then that shouldn't be an issue. And I would say to Olivia, plan B would be um, the morning after pill. And I hope you never have to use that, but at least you've got a plan B. Mm. Um, And that's what I would be saying is a healthy approach to contraception. You know, if if you're happy for your daughter to take birth control, then that's also, you've got to make sure that she's taking it at the same time every day, um, most teenagers aren't a good fit for a an IUD, so that's not even an option. And I would definitely—that's a good thing that it's not an option. But but some mothers would love their daughters to be a set and forget scenario. So you know, I'm sure that there are um, scenarios where that happens. At least the thing about birth control is you can decide to come off it, like as in oral contraceptive pill. You can stop taking that when you decide to. But again, it doesn't prevent STDs. Um, you, it, it does rely on someone taking it at the same time every day. And there are many things that make birth control ineffective, which we're not necessarily taught. It's not as, it's effective when used 100% correctly. But there's a lot of pregnancies that happen on birth control, a yeah. lot of pregnancies that happen on birth control. So I don't, I mean, to me, body wisdom is key. I have been practicing fertility awareness my entire life. I have two children. There's no accidents. It's not that hard. I, I'm at the point where I look at it and I'm like, how can you not know? Like, it's so obvious <laughs> when I'm ovulating. How can you not know? But we are disconnected because no one taught us this early on. Mm. And so, therefore, it's not it's not your fault if you're listening to this going, I, I don't even know how to work it out myself. How can I tell my daughter if I don't know myself? We have to be the example here as well. I would also like to circle back on something you said before. We're talking about stress and hormones and how it's related and being aware of it and having that awareness of our cycle with these other things that happen in our life. Personally, I've been dealing with mental health for a few years and it's had some big effects on my body. And as I said before, I'm not looking to conceive now, but when I look to conceive in the future, will mental health and or if I have a very stressful life or there's big stresses in my life, will that affect my chances to conceive? That's a great question. We definitely know that stress takes hormones offline, like I said at the beginning. So getting some strategies around that. The other question, yeah, you asked the question and I, I want to make it clear also that we almost think we're going to have issues because it looks like everybody else is having issues. So we adopt their their experience as our own and it's not. 
And there's definitely things you can do to prioritize your health, whatever that means for you. You know what makes you feel good. You know what you can do to actually, you know, work with your body. And you know that there's certain things that probably add up when you're not feeling at your best. Um, so it is a matter of, of more of those things that you can do to support your mental health to make you feel better. I think self-belief is a really important thing when it comes to fertility. And I spend far more time giving patients pep talks that it's going to happen for them than I do treating. Your thoughts create your reality. If you're constantly here going, I'm never going to fall pregnant or probably never going to fall pregnant or, you know, you know, there's, you're literally inviting in exactly what you don't want to happen. Your body hears that. It goes on a mission to try and search for reasons why you won't fall pregnant. So the thing about your subconscious is it's the smartest, dumbest thing you have. You tell it something enough times over and it just believes it and goes looking for evidence of it. So you don't even have to believe that you're going to fall pregnant. You just need to keep telling yourself you're going to fall pregnant and it will start to find evidence of that and, and creating an optimal environment for that. The reality is this. As a woman, your body on any given day is setting you up for, for fertility. Even if you're not getting a menstrual cycle, you got to just hear me out on this because it wants to put you in an optimal position. So if you've got to think of it backwards, if you're not getting a cycle, why aren't you getting a cycle? And it's your body's way of protecting you, waiting for the best time when it goes, oh, this is a good environment for conception. Okay, let's go. And then if you are cycling on any given day, it's basically it's either getting ready to conceive or it's preparing to do away with the fact that you didn't conceive in preparation to get ready to conceive again. It knows what to do from a fertility perspective. You just have to actually create an environment that's optimal for that to happen. So I would say the major- the vast majority of women actually have the potential to fall pregnant. It's just creating the right environment for that to happen. I've just recently had a baby and I spent the majority of my pregnancy terrified that I was going to miscarry. I spent the majority leading up to my pregnancy terrified I wasn't going to fall pregnant. And then the time before that, terrified I was. So, you know, and that's exactly, and that's how I felt the whole time. I know, especially during my pregnancy, I just, I didn't probably enjoy it. I didn't share it with people as much as I would have because I was terrified I was going to miscarry. Um, I guess many people do experience miscarriages Mm. and I know that you've spoken a lot about miscarriages on your socials and on podcast and that there's a reason for miscarriages and Mm. that people need to get checked sooner you know where do they go so how what questions do they need to be asking you know when they do have that first miscarriage because I think the majority of stories I see it's not the first miscarriage that they ask about it's the fifth it's quite far down the track before mm-hmm. they start checking what's going on. I always come back with a couple of things with miscarriage. Um, I will always look at the male f- fertility as well, actually through all fertility, but especially with miscarriage, I'll, I'll actually look at the male first, especially when the miscarriage is earlier on than later on because, uh, you know, there's a developing embryo, but the placenta doesn't really form until sort of nine-plus weeks. So prior to that, it's the embryo doing all of the work and it's the embryo initiating what needs to happen and then your body responding to that so that comes down to the environment but also the embryo itself which is then 50 percent your partner and 50 percent you 
So it makes sense to actually look mm. at both at that point in time. Any, anything that you can do to support your fertility is going to reduce the incidence of miscarriage just by the nature of how that works. You know, we see it as a separate scenario. We see miscarriage as a freak incident is the most common thing that you'll get told. You know, one in three pregnancies end in miscarriage. It's just a freak thing that happens. I think the issue also is, Clara, to your point, no one talks about it no. until you've had several miscarriages and then you mention it and then you're in a group of women and half of the women there have had a miscarriage as well and you're like, oh, my goodness, this is way more common. I don't think there's – it is a really unresourced area of fertility because there's nothing that medicine can do at that point other than wait to see what happens once you're actually pregnant and experiencing a miscarriage, which is awful, and women feel very isolated and alone because – they're not given answers because there is no good answer at that point in time. We don't know why necessarily it's happened. Eventually, you might go on and do some testing. I always say to patients, look, if you know that you are wanting to conceive, the you know preconception care is very important and counts towards miscarriage, you know, or preventing miscarriage. There's no like ooh, evidence like, oh, you've got to absolutely do X, Y, Z. Mm. It's the sum of all things. It's egg quality, it's sperm quality, it's compatibility, it's environment. So as many of these things, that, these variables that you can um, eliminate or at least manage, you're going to have a less of a chance of miscarriage. Um, one thing I know is tremendous for miscarriage is acupuncture. And we treat a lot of patients in that you know instance of miscarriage with acupuncture because it doesn't require you to do anything else. We know it reduces inflammation. We know it breaks the stress circuit. You know, there's many benefits to acupuncture, but if it just does those two things alone, that's a huge win and it you know helps to consolidate the uterus. So acupuncture is fantastic for anyone that I've seen with recurrent miscarriage, we will treat them um, quite regularly and that works really well. If you've had one miscarriage, then absolutely start to explore what else is going on. And there's many, many factors that can contribute, but I think all you can do is anything and everything to improve your overall fertility, egg quality and environment. Thank you, yeah. Nat. Thank you so much You're for your so time. You're so welcome. Thank you've you. You've been a wealth of knowledge and very generous, <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for having me. And for all our listeners who want to learn more about hormone health, we'll put all the links to this conversation in the show notes below for you to check out. Like this podcast, please give us a five-star review and share it with someone who you think would benefit from it. We want to help as many people as possible live healthier lives. This podcast is general in nature. We aren't doctors or health practitioners. But if this podcast has prompted something for you, we really encourage you to make an appointment with your health practitioner and get advice that is tailored to you. This podcast is recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples.